Father, as we uh, continue looking at your word, we ask that uh, you would focus our minds and our hearts, help us to understand your word and help us to grow in our love and knowledge of you. Uh, would you confront us with your magnificence in your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 19. This is John's testimony when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He testified and did not deny. He testified, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, Who then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, who are you so that we can give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice crying in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Some of the Pharisees had also been sent. They asked and said to him, so why do you baptise if you're neither the Messiah, Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptise with water. Among you stands someone you don't recognise, the one who comes behind me, of whom I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These events happened at Bethany of Transjordan, where John was baptising. The next day, he sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, behind me comes a man who has come to be ahead of me, because he was before me. Not even I had known him, but I came baptising so that he could be revealed to Israel. John testified, saying, I have observed the Spirit descending upon him like a dove from the heaven and resting upon him. Not even I had known him, but the one who sent me to baptise in water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this man is the Son of God. In 1989, uh, there, were, there was a student uprising in China uh, and these images confronted uh, the world on the TV screens what has come to be known as Tiananmen Square Man. This anonymous person who obviously had a name, had relatives, had a, you know, um, a, a job, circumstances, confronted an entire convoy of tanks just by standing in front of them. And he kept putting himself in their way. And in this symbolic gesture was critiquing the harshness of the regime that was clamping down so lethally upon so many people who lost their lives uh, in this uprising. Well, I want to say to you that I think John the Baptist stands in a similar kind of vein, just like Tiananmen Square Man fronting up to the establishment and making a very clear symbolic statement against them, 
so John the Baptist appears in the desert uh, around the Jordan Valley, in the Jordan River, and makes a symbolic gesture that critiques the establishment of his day. John the Baptist is baptising. Now, we're all familiar with baptism. Uh, It's, you know, one of the the badges of being an Anglican uh, and certainly one of the badges of being a Christian more broadly. Uh, But what is baptism in a biblical context, especially in an Old Covenant context, in the Old old Covenant of Israel? Well, under the Old Covenant, baptism is really just ritual washing. It's the kind of thing that gets described in Leviticus, which we've just started today, and it's a sign of the end of ritual impurity. It's a sign that you've Uh, recognise that you were in some way impaired in your ritual status among the people of God, but you've served a necessary quarantine time and now you are washing yourself to symbolically show that that has come to an end, you're being reintegrated into society and you're ready to participate in society once again. Um, And in particular to take part in the sacrificial system. Now, the Pharisees in uh, Jesus' day had developed all sorts of extra traditions around ritual washing, uh, and they took it to the nth degree. They ritually washed at the drop of a hat, uh, sometimes, you know, many times a day. Uh, And it's interesting that uh, archaeologists keep digging up ritual baths all over the place, uh, in villages, in homes, everywhere. It just became the new fad to baptise yourself uh, and in that way to make sure that you were ritually pure uh, and to also demonstrate that to other people. But one of the interesting things about ritual washing, especially when we look at the Old Testament, is that it was never about the forgiveness of sins. It was about symbolising the end of your quarantine period. Forgiveness of sins under the Old Covenant needed sacrifice. And the only way you could participate in the sacrificial system was if you had done the proper ritual washing to begin with. Well, then you were okay, you were ready to come and offer a sacrifice. And it was the sacrifice that dealt with your sin at the altar. And you couldn't offer a sacrifice if you were ritually unclean. Now, the interesting thing about what we see in John chapter 1 here is that John the Baptist is out in the Jordan Valley, in the desert at the Jordan River. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. He's nowhere near the altar where people would come to offer their sacrifices. So John's performing this ritual washing with people, but... He's nowhere near where the next step would be taken. That is, at the altar in Jerusalem. In fact, John the Baptist seems to be encouraging people away from Jerusalem, away from the temple and away from the altar. He's drawing people out into the desert. He's ritually washing them there And in fact, John goes out of his way to to tell us that this occurred at Bethany in Transjordan. Technically, he's even gone outside the promised land. He's on the east side 
of the Jordan River. He's getting people away from the establishment. He's getting people away from the temple and the altar and taking them out of the promised land even. It's a very symbolic gesture. It's as though John the Baptist has deliberately turned his back on Jerusalem and its leadership, which is based in the temple. He's not leaving it up to them to show what people should do. The fact is he just doesn't trust them. He's taking people out of that particular setting. He's turned his back on the leadership and he feels the need to almost press reset on the status of the whole Jewish nation by taking them outside the promised land. It reminds me quite a bit of the tent embassy in Canberra, which was set up, you know, nearly 50 years ago now, when uh, there was an Aboriginal protest against the establishment at Parliament House, which they saw as unjust, as inherently discriminating against them and working against their best interests. Some Just four people to start with came together, sat underneath a beach umbrella as a protest against the establishment, and it's still there today. So it's little surprise that John the Baptist caused a lot of waves, literally and figuratively. Thank you. <laughs> Check. Transfer is on its way. It's little surprise that he caused waves. I mean, even Josephus, who's later in the first century, mentions John the Baptist and just how big a deal he was. He's baptising out in the desert, outside the promised land rather than in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has a whole lot of ritual baths in it and he's not using them, he's going to the desert. It is very clearly a vote of no confidence in the leaders of his day. It's almost like Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, except John the Baptist is now doing it in reverse. He's leading Israel out of the promised land. It's a very you know, poignant and very powerful deconstruction of where John the Baptist thinks the nation is at in its current state. He thinks that the national leaders have almost become like Pharaoh. They are to be fled from. And he's taking people away from them. It implies the need for a new Moses, a new Exodus, a new Sinai, a new covenant and a new people of God. The old has just become corrupt, unjust and harmful. The leadership has departed from God's purposes for his covenant people. And so that's why I think John, the writer, the evangelist, draws our attention specifically to the leaders of the nation who come to John the Baptist in the desert. He talks about the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the priests, the Levites in Jerusalem. These are the supremos of Judaism. And they are sending their heavies out into the desert to interrogate John the Baptist. And a little bit further down, John tells us also that the Pharisees 
who at one point also held political power, but now most of them are just lay leaders, but they're very prominent and influential lay leaders. These are the gatekeepers of God's covenant people. And they come to John with a very targeted question. Who are you? You can hear the suspicion in the question. It almost has the ring of Pharaoh to it as well. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Who are you that you do what you are doing out here and undermining us, the gatekeepers? But the question also shows that there's a whole lot of expectation that's bubbling throughout the nation, the Jewish nation, at this particular point. And so there's almost like you know, a list to work down. Who are you? First of all, let's start at the top. Are you the Messiah? No, John says. I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the one promised from the line of David. I'm not the promised king whom God has promised to bring in order to fulfill his promises of restoration, in order to re-establish justice and righteousness in God's nation. No, that's not who I am. Okay. Probably thinking the leaders. So then, next on the list, are you Elijah? Now, this isn't a question of uh, we think we believe in reincarnation and so we're expecting Elijah the prophet to somehow be reborn or come back arriving on chariots of fire or something like that. Uh, it's picking up on Malachi chapter 4 where God says to his people, you are waiting for someone to come and make a difference in your community, in, within your nation. Before that happens, and it will happen... And just you wait when it happens, it's going to be bigger than you expect. But before that happens, I will send an Elijah figure to proclaim to you that things are about to get real. And so they ask him, are you this Elijah figure? And John says, no, I'm not the Elijah figure. Which has me stumped a little bit because in the other Gospels, Jesus goes, you know what? You know that Elijah figure that we've been waiting for? Yeah, we got him. It was John the Baptist. And I think it shows to us that John the Baptist wasn't really fully aware of his own role within God's covenant plan, God's promises. But in hindsight... We look back at John and we go, yes, he was exactly that Elijah figure. But John himself, and this you know, shows, I think, the very human side of John the Baptist, he himself wasn't fully aware of his own role in this. So, working our way down the list, you're not the prophet, you don't think you're Elijah. Well, sorry, you're not the, not the Messiah, you're not Elijah. So, are you the prophet? Now, who is this prophet? Who is the prophet we're talking about here? Well, on the one hand, we can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses uh, tells the people of Israel that God will guide the nation through prophets. The nation isn't to go seeking necromancers and mediums and occultic means of finding guidance. 
Rather, God would send them prophets. There would be an established office of the prophet who would bring God's word, God's will, understanding of his character, critiques and evaluations. All the second years, no, divine comment on human affairs. That's what prophets do, what they bring. And Moses says to Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me. On the one hand, he's talking about that ongoing prophetic office. And so in that sense, all the prophets of the Old Testament stand in the tradition of Moses. But you also get a sense that there, there will be one particular prophet who's going to come, who's going to be a almost capital P prophet as opposed to little p prophet. But I think there's more than that going on as well. You see... The nation of Israel experienced exile. Its kingdom was destroyed. It went into exile. And then it came back from exile and they rebuilt the temple and it was under the leadership of the Davidic descendant Zerubbabel. Those in the fourth year Hebrew Old Testament class, you're nodding your heads here. You know what we're talking about, especially you, James. <laughs> they, bring, they come back and under the leadership of a Davidic descendant, they rebuild the temple, and yet Zerubbabel ultimately doesn't amount to much. And the Davidic line, it continues, but it just becomes less and less important as time goes on. And in its place, the priests become more and more important. And so as the centuries go on, the Davidic descendants are still there, but they're not holding power, they're not holding office, the priests are the ones who are calling the shots. They are the ones who are shaping Judaism. And they're taking over all the roles that the king was meant to fulfill within God's people. The priests have decided to take that on for themselves. Whereas once they were the employees of the Davidic king, now they have become even more important than a Davidic king. Eventually, the Jewish nation got independence in 142 BC under a high priest by the name of Simon. But there were still people in God's covenant people who said, this isn't right. It's great that we've got independence. Yeah, we'll wave the national flag for that. But it's not right that we have a priest ruling God's people when... God has promised us a Davidic king. And so there seems to have been a bit, of, um, a bit of friction between Simon and his priestly supporters, the Sadducees, and others who were saying, no, we're still waiting for a Davidic descendant, a Messiah, to come. And so into the constitutional document that was written for Simon to describe his high priestly powers. It was said that the nation gave him the power to rule as a high priest until the prophet came along to say otherwise. Now, Simon the high priest, I can guarantee you, didn't think that such a prophet would ever arise. I don't think he would ever have allowed that clause that sunset clause on his own power to make it into the constitutional document 
if he honestly thought a prophet would arise to get rid of him. But what that tells you is that people still believed that God would be faithful to his promises, that he hadn't changed his mind and just set aside what he'd said about the Davidic, uh, the Davidic dynasty, about how he'd promised to restore the Davidic dynasty to rule, about all the promises of Israel belonging to the son of David. They said, no, God hasn't changed his mind. He's still going to do that. And we're waiting for a prophet to come along and show the leaders of the nation how that is going to happen. John the Baptist says, no, that's not me. But there is someone coming after me. Notice who is asking the questions to John. The priests, the Levites, those who hold power, the bosses and supremos who are interested in preserving their own power. And you can hear that as they ask John these questions, they are trying to protect themselves. They're sizing up John just so that they know what strategy to best employ so that they can remain in power. They're not interested in God's program of restoration. They're not interested in people's purity. They're not interested in sin and rectifying it. They are interested in preserving themselves, their own position, their establishment. And it takes a lot of guts for someone to stand up to them in a very symbolic and poignant way and show them where they're going wrong by taking people out into the desert beyond the borders of the promised land and pressing reboot. It takes a lot of guts for leaders to stand up to an establishment that is getting it terribly wrong. Yet it must happen. It takes a lot of guts to recognise where things are going wrong, especially when it gets clothed in good biblical language. But to recognise that the people of God are being led astray The people of God are being undermined. The shepherds are harming the sheep. John the Baptist has the guts. And he stands up and says, look, I don't think I'm any of those roles that you've just pointed out, but someone is coming after me. Things are about to get very real. And the next day, he looks and he sees the divine, eternal word, the solution to Israel's problems, right there, standing in front of him. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. John could ritually wash people, 
get them ready. But sin needs sacrifice to be dealt with. And John looks at the divine eternal word and says, here it is. Here is one who doesn't come with sword, doesn't come with force, doesn't come with surprising skills to wow people. He comes clothed in flesh to be the sacrifice who deals with the most fundamental problem of not just Israel, but the whole world. Here is the solution to Israel's problems. Here is the sacrifice that will work. Here is the sacrifice, the lamb, who critiques and overthrows the current establishment. Here is the lamb whose sacrifice will actually work within a dysfunctional nation whose blood will release that nation from its slavery to its own corrupt leaders. The lamb whose sacrifice will solve not just Israel's problems, but the whole world's, including yours and mine, 2,000 years later. The lamb who is the divine eternal word made flesh come to lay down his own life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at the wonder of your Son, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. We revel in your mercy and love that, as, that we have become the recipients of forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you have given your Son to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.